You're listening to highlights from the Creative Process Interview with Jeannie Vanaska. This podcast is supported by the Jan Wachowski Foundation. Jeannie Vanaska, welcome to the Creative Process. Hello, thank you so much for having me. And so, you know, we're really just taken away by the honesty and intimacy and bravery of your memoirs. But to give those who aren't familiar yet with your work, just, I believe you've chosen a passage from near the beginning of things we didn't talk about when I was a girl. Yes, yeah, I'll I'll just read a very short passage there. It's from the section after the prologue, the first chapter, there are gaps. I already predict failure. I'm afraid he'll say no, or even worse, ignore me. But why wouldn't he agree to speak with me? He owes me that much. I could disguise his identity, change his name. Combing a naming dictionary for some rough translation of friend, I first land on Aldwin, old friend. I picture a knight, an 11th century Norman invader, a sorcerer in a fantasy novel, a president of a Martha's Vineyard men's club a child of artfully tattooed parents. Between 1880 and 2016, the Social Security Administration recorded only 129 babies named Aldwin. My former friend's pseudonym should be common, modern, unassuming. I want readers to know someone with the same name. Phil means friend, but he's not the Phil type. Phil orders everybody drinks. Phil shakes your hand, says, Call me Phil. Phil's too casual, too laid back. My former friend may have slacked from one day into the next, but he wavered between anxious and depressed. Philip then? Philip contains friend, friend of horses, but I doubt he ever touched a horse. He preferred the indoors, rarely strained from couch, desk, and bed. His white skin burned easily. Forget name origins. What about the origins of words that are also names, like Nick? Some of Nick's obsolete meanings, reckoning or account, slang for the vagina. But I dated a Nick in college briefly between boyfriends. I'd prefer that memories of Nick, him telling me, I could tell you weren't very cultured when I met you. And how have you not heard of broken social scene? And I don't understand why you won't sleep with me if you like me, not influence this project. Though I like the sound of Nick. So I want a monosyllabic word that works as a name and contains a K. Mark maybe? Its main definition, a boundary. And that's what this is about, boundaries. Perfect, Mark then. Why should I protect Mark? I enter his work address in Google Street View. Instead of his pale yellow office building on an industrial one-way street, I aim my view at the clouds and telephone wires. The wires don't line up precisely. There are gaps of just sky, gaps between communication. I should stop searching for metaphors. Mark and I stopped speaking to one another in college. He was in Ohio studying engineering. I was in Illinois majoring in journalism. He dropped out shortly after we last spoke, which is not to say I'm the reason or that what happened between us is the reason. 
but I hope it's the reason, or rather what he did to me during winter break of our sophomore year is, I hope, the reason. I can't forget, I was passed out. And it so conveys the complexity of those those things that happen to us. And then you're, you're just going through maturity and, and you don't know. And so we, I've, I got from it, I, I, everyone would get something different from your memoirs, is that it it conveys that in between that not knowing, not even knowing whether to call it rape, you know, when it's a friend. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what interested me about this particular, it's weird to talk about it as well. It really interested me, but as a writer, there is a distance that it provides, which is both exciting, but also concerning as I was working on the project, because I started to see it as this intellectual exercise and forget that, oh, it happened to me. Like these, like what are my feelings outside of writing the book? And so, but what interested me about this particular experience is because I didn't have the language to attach to it in the way that I had the language to attach to a later experience that I would have no trouble calling rape. But what happened between me and I call Mark in the book I didn't know what to call that for the longest time. So I didn't know how to feel about it. And so as a writer, that, that interests me when I don't have the words for something, when I sense that I'm going to, I mean, inevitably I'm going to, to fail with whatever I work in, because when I start working on a project, it's never, I I have this, you know, this wonderful idealized sense of what I'm going to do. And it's impossible for a creative work to live up to that in some ways, but that is the pleasure of writing. And so coming at this from a sense of when, you know, when I write, I already predict failure coming at this from a sense of, okay, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off for all different sorts of reasons, but that is what excites me and energizes me as a writer, as a creative person. Looking back now at the memoir, and having time to process those emotions. During the book, you kind of were struggling because you didn't have much anger. You felt you should be more angry. What were those emotions after the book was released? Did you finally feel that anger or was there more relief? Maybe go into how you felt about that. That's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, with it, it came about really in interviews with, uh, with people where, you know, by the time you finish a book, at least my experience is such, I'm so exhausted and I'm so sick of the book by the time it comes out. And, you know, that's not, your publicist doesn't want you saying that. That doesn't exactly, that doesn't exactly move product. So I, I found myself though surprised and rethinking the project when I was being interviewed and, and finding myself getting angry because I was asked questions such as, well, why do you think you were sexually assaulted as much as you were? Or I, I would get questions from, I think maybe what was most disappointing to me were when men would tell me they didn't know anyone like Mark. And that made me ang- that made me really angry. And I and it caused me to like think through more deeply like why it made me angry. But I heard from so many women who told me, oh, I know so many guys exactly like Mark. And the distancing that I saw play out among 
men who'd read the book and, you know, and I'm also generalizing and it's hard. It's also a self-selecting crowd of who's, who's reading this book, but that urge to distance the, the men's urge to distance themselves, but then also women asking me why they thought I was sexually assaulted as much as I was and asking me to explain and, and thinking about, okay, well, why is the question not, why is sexual assault as prevalent as it is? Instead of asking someone who's experienced it, why do you think it's happened so much to you? So I think the anger that came about after I'd written the book and when I was on tour was, you know, this is a memoir. So it's about my individual experience. I am not an expert on how to end sexual violence. I am, I'm just not an expert. It's, this is, one experience. But overall, I should clarify that the responses were overwhelmingly positive. And, you know, people did have intellectual and emotional, like really interesting responses. I think it must be so fascinating to learn about your experiences, to relive your experiences. And it's like, you know, an unearthing or an archaeology. And so you've written also uh, about your father, your father, your father's death, your half sister's death, and the, the whole mysteriousness of that, because she had died before you didn't know her. So you had to unearth her life, you know, through second hand. And, and then your father who had passed away, I think uh, you were just turning 18. So then, you know, our impressions of events when we're that young are vivid, but also, you know, strange to us in our adult lives. So I just wonder what you feel like your experiences of your life would be if you weren't writing them. That is a great question. I, I, cause I was thinking back recently. I mean, I don't go back, I don't reread old, old work, but I was thinking back about the glass eye and the ways in which, you know, I, I can't help but question like as a writer, as a memoirist, we're, sh- we're noting, we're looking for coincidences and by nature, we're looking for patterns. And a lot of times those are coincidences, but they become, the coincidences become meaningful because the writer sees meaning in them. And so then that gets at who the individual is. And yet as, you know, writing that first book, I promised him, I don't think he even heard me promise him the book, but you know, the night before he died, I told him I would write a book for him, either for him or about him. And I became obsessed with my half sister in a way where I started to question, was I that obsessed with her when I was growing up? How much did I actually think about her? Am I imposing meaning where there was none because I'm looking for a shape? in the work as a writer. And I think that that sort of frightens me as a writer. And I, you know, as much as I say, I care about getting the facts right or getting, you know, of course I care about getting at the truth. I did question a lot when working on that book and then even later thinking about it, like how much did, how much did it affect me at the time? How much like, or was I not thinking about it much? And suddenly now thinking about it, there had been all of this repressed, this repressed grief or frustration or anxiety about, you know, my namesake about, about Jeannie. I think it's really hard as a writer to, as a memoirist to, to sense at what point are we shaping the material from our lives 
to make, to try and make good art and how truthful is that? I mean, I think the place of childhood always uh, influences us all and it clings to us wherever we go in the world. Uh, and your I'm, childhood, as you've you know told in, in your memoirs, uh, and also the, the place of childhood, you're, you grew up in a, an unusual house. It's kind of like a fairy tale, but it's kind of like a, a children's book. Uh, it had a life of its own. Yes, yes. So the metaphor, like the, I just, the, the house where I grew up, the inherently to me, very metaphorical. It had been cut in half and moved across town and put back together. We don't know why. My, my mom wasn't sure why. She lived in that house almost her entire life. And so it was uneven. And, you know, you couldn't hang a picture straight. I mean, it wasn't so uneven. It wasn't like Alice in Wonderland, like things were sliding off the table, but, but it was, it was off. And, you know, as a writer, as a memoirist, you're, you're mining your past and looking for, at least I am, the, the metaphorical range in particular experiences. And so there was also, I mean, I remember when my, when my dad lost his left eye to a rare disease and, and needed to get a glass eye, that was even like, to me, very metaphorical. It's not even really made of glass. And, and so then I think about, well, okay, glass implies the ability to be broken. And, and so then there are all of these different ways in which I look back at my childhood, almost as looking for not archetypes, but seeing the, seeing the symbolism that's there. And so it's like the unevenness of the house, you know, as you, you had mentioned, and I think about my dad's I or the letter I that was added to my name, like just all of these ways in which something can mean more or seem to mean more than it does. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.